Dr. Sunil Dehand is a practicing physician. He's a health and lifestyle coach, now content creator. His work primarily focuses on lifestyle medicine and metabolic health. He's built a huge online following through his easy to consume, but sometimes quite controversial content around human health and what we can do to promote better health outcomes, perhaps without always having pharmaceutical interventions. To set the tone, I'll quote Dr. DeHand, modern mainstream culture will make you very sick very fast and healthcare and medicine has sadly become corrupted. I think that's a good place to, to start this episode. Um, if you're happy for me to call you Sunil, uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Great to be talking to you. And you, you nailed uh, the gist of my work right there with your superb introduction. So thank you. Um, I'm really, I'm kind of really interested to know, um, you know, to start with Sunil, you know, you, you, you trained here in the UK uh, to, be, you know, formally, um, and then you emigrated out to uh, America to start your work practicing in the kind of Western kind of healthcare model. I'm really fascinated to know, you know, when did you start to, uh, you know, now it's very obvious your kind of position um, on on the healthcare system. Talk, I'm really interested to know, talk to me about whether that was during your training or when you started practicing, what were some of the things that started to sort of creep into your mind that started to make you think maybe what I'm learning, what I'm being taught isn't the full picture? Um, yeah, I'm fascinated where it all began. Yeah, that's a great question. I think when, when most people go to medical school, we're very young in the UK, we're still basically teenagers. And we're on this path, we worked very hard and we assume that the system is set up correctly, that there are all the right agendas in place, people's heart is in the right place. We want to, to go into this for an altruistic reason. And I think that's why most people go to medical school. And I went to medical school about two hours west of where we live in Berkshire. I went to Cardiff University, went through med school and uh, that time sort of whizzed by. And uh, when you're in medical school, you kind of have your head down. You're thinking about what your career is going to be. I knew when I was in the latter part of med school, I wanted to train in the United States. So I did my licensing exams, worked for about a year and a half in the National Health Service, came to the US, then did a very intense three-year internal medicine residency training. Following that, I entered clinical practice. It's uh, much quicker over there to become a quote unquote consultant over here. We call them attending doctors. And I realized very quickly when I was practicing acute care medicine, which was my chosen specialty, my chosen field, I was working in the hospital. This is going back over 10 years ago now. And I was realizing that yes, we can fix things very quickly. Obviously the US system is very different from the UK system. It's more profit driven and it's much more overt, the uh, financial conflicts of interest over here. And it's taken as a given. But I would say I realized very quickly within a year or two of being an attending doctor that a massive proportion of what we were doing was simply fixing those lifestyle related issues. And that got me into preventive medicine, metabolic health. I, I wrote a book, which by now is almost outdated because so much has changed in terms of our knowledge. But I really wanted to focus a lot of my practice, not just on fixing those acute problems that come into hospital, like heart attacks, strokes, 
uh, lung issues, gastrointestinal issues, sepsis, but getting to why the people I was seeing were so metabolically unhealthy in the first place. And then I started more outpatient work. I got into health lifestyle medicine coaching, and that brings me to where we are now. Obviously, we've had an insane last three years, but I would say right before 2020, the extent of the financial conflicts of interest and the corruption which have produced our metabolic health catastrophe were becoming evident to me. But the last three years, it's gone off the charts in terms of my awareness and realization of the terrible system that we have. I can only really speak in detail about the United States, but here we have a system which is basically set up to make hundreds of millions of people very sick indeed. Big food companies profit off this. And then hospitals, healthcare, big pharmaceutical companies, they profit off the horrible illnesses that result. And there's a statistic that under 10% of people in the United States, under 10% are now metabolically healthy. That is a catastrophic situation. It's unsustainable. And I come back to the United Kingdom probably every three or four months. And every single year, the UK is creeping closer to the United States. And I have a great love for both countries. And I want to dedicate my work to reversing this absolute catastrophe we have that the establishment does not care one jot about and they're not focused on at all. So some 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 big bold statements there around how um, the medical systems, pharma, the food industries uh, are contributing to the demise of health. Let's talk. Let's 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 actually break that down into a into a into what a, an individual's journey might look like. So when we talk about metabolic health, certainly in the U.S., more so now in the U.K., we're talking about one of the core things obesity right we're talking about someone um grows up perhaps they are um uh uh advertised to about certain foods um they're not educated in a balanced way and so they uh put on weight they become obese i don't know what the statistics are in the u.s but it's it's a, a growing proportion of the population now that are clinically obese. I think that would be fair to say. Absolutely, yes. And 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 the impression that I get, well, what I what I think you're saying, Sunil, is that. Um, but the problem is, it's not just that people are being advertised to, and 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 food has become so accessible, and 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 so they fall into these traps. You're saying that once people become sick or have knock-on effects, uh, lifestyle-induced diseases, you're saying that or suggesting that actually that might be beneficial financially for some people, people being in that position. You mean getting metabolically healthier? No, yeah. I mean, so so actually we think about somebody being obese as a, a terrible thing and it must be a nightmare for the system, but you're actually saying that in some cases people are benefiting from people oh. being unwell. Absolutely. In the United States, that's the case. That's why our medical establishments, our physician societies, which are utterly corrupt to the core, in my opinion, they are riddled with financial conflicts of interest. They are sponsored by big pharmaceutical companies. My inclination is that the United Kingdom would not be far off that situation, but it may be more hidden and not discussed. But here it's very overt. So doctors, 
healthcare institutions and the establishment. By the establishment, what I mean is the ruling medical establishment, the big organizations in the United States like the CDC and FDA are profiting off this situation because when people get sick and obese, another, an, another important thing I would like to clarify, we think of people becoming obese and then getting sick, but actually what's happened is your body has already become sick before it becomes obese. You've reached your, your kind of tipping point. So you get sick first and then you become obese. So that's important to, that point is important to distinguish. But yes, this is a bonanza pharmaceutical companies, which unfortunately you may not be familiar with the extent of this in the United Kingdom, two thirds of Congress, so the equivalent of the House of Commons, the House of Lords are paid money by big pharmaceutical companies. Last year, big pharmaceutical companies spent $300 million lobbying in Washington DC to get favorable regulations. Drugs are astoundingly expensive. The pharma companies also sponsor the media in this company, which formulates a narrative that the salvation for people is through drugs. It's not just drugs, surgeries. Every time someone gets gastric bypass, it's $25,000, $30,000 for the institution. The people at the top are benefiting from a sick population. And this is a dereliction of duty on behalf of the medical profession. If I sound passionate about this, it's because I am. It is a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. We are in mass allowing people to get sick because in the United States, we have these vast profits that are being generated, these drugs, these surgeries. And I think there are a lot of people at the top that don't want to solve this problem. That's the issue. That's why I'm more hopeful that this might happen addressing it might happen more easily in a, a country like the United Kingdom with socialized healthcare. Yeah, but but actually, so so just going back to that point to really kind of try and understand what that user journey might be, and and I think this is interesting about the UK as well. So what you're saying is is that um, uh, uh, food industries potentially aren't regulated tight enough. Obesity can start at an earlier age. People's education around food perhaps isn't tight enough, so people become obese, and then lifestyle disease, diseases uh, develop. Um, and let's let's actually try and kind of picture what a, what a what that journey. I always think it's nice to be literal about this, right? So somebody uh, becomes obese. Let's say they they uh, uh, become kind of diabetic. What you're saying is is that they go to the doctors. The solution to this at the moment maybe not necessarily a functional approach. It might well be a prescription of some type. And what we're saying is that even here in the UK, there may be, in some cases, a financial incentive from the pharmaceutical company for people to have, let's use in this case, diabetes. Yes, there, there may be because they, they make money of selling these drugs. It happens be more behind the curtains because they're selling the drugs to the government. And even your regulatory agency in the UK, what's it called, the MHRA, is almost entirely funded by pharmaceutical companies. But yes, there, there is. And this, this journey for the individual, and I, I love, the, uh, love the fact that you mentioned that because it's important for everybody listening to not hear me and think these are just platitudes, although they're important platitudes. Let's talk about the average journey for Joe, working class citizen. Baby, you are going to be fed in the United States, again, I'm sure the UK is not far off, you're going to be fed baby formula, which is totally ultra processed, high in sugar, 
packed with seed oils, artificial substances. So the ultra processed food starts this issue. Then kids will grow up. I think this is a whole other topic, but mental health is also affected by bad food. Kids will get to being teenagers and teenagers now are not the same as teenagers say a hundred years ago, they're riddled with more metabolic problems and more mental health problems as a result of a, a poor diet. They will start to maybe visit their doctors more, they'll get inflammatory disorders, and then this cascade will develop in their 20s and 30s. Yes, weight will eventually be gained because the body can't, can't cope anymore, it's reaching its tipping point. People will become insulin resistant for 10, 20 years, then boom, in their 30s or 40s, they'll get that diagnosis, type two diabetes, they'll be put on drugs, many will struggle with weight because most of this comes back to a very bad food supply, not eating the same as our grandparents and great grandparents did, we'll talk more about that. And then by 40s, 50s, you have a large segment of the population that have these diagnoses, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, they may get the beginnings of atherosclerosis, they may be on antidepressants, other mental health drugs, and it all comes back to the fact that for decades, they have simply been eating the wrong food and they're stuck in this system and people seem to think that this is an inevitable part of aging and growing older, but it's not an inevitable path by any means. We need more education and awareness and the medical community really needs to get their acts together and address this problem and fix some of the root causes so that millions and millions of people don't go down this road. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to know because obviously, you know, we are in some ways, as we have this conversation, having two conversations in parallel. We're having a conversation about a uh, privatized healthcare system in the in the US, exactly. and we're having a conversation about. Yeah, it's tough. To uh, and, well, well, no, I, I think it's interesting. Um, and a publicized healthcare system in the UK, they are, uh, you know, and what we're saying is, in in some ways, to to keep things simple. I always like to keep things simple. Um, but they um, they are facing. Uh, similar challenges because there are financial benefits for people like pharmaceutical companies um, to and, and, and private partners, even here in the NHS. Um, when we think about the solutions to these problems, I think even myself sometimes can be overly simplistic. So let's take the, the example of the NHS, right? A simplistic solution would be, well, um, if there was just a more functional approach to medicine and we spent more time with patients and we gave more, more lifestyle interventions, it would save a lot of money in the, in, in, in the long term. But the issue with that is, is that the NHS ultimately is a life-saving service, not a life-optimizing service. And so it would be financially very, very challenging we can be idealistic and say, well, it should just be more functional. I'm interested from your perspective, um, Sunil, particularly having been trained uh, and worked inside the NHS, if there are things that you think that could be done that, that would address this. Let's talk specifically to start with, with, with the NHS. Yeah, and I, I do have a lot of experience with the NHS. Every time I'm back in the UK, I'm taking a relative to an NHS hospital or GP appointments. And I know the GP system is a, a complete disaster right now in the UK. I have a lot of friends who are GPs. So I can talk about the NHS from experience, even though I haven't worked in the system for some time. I'm much more hopeful 
that change may occur in a system like the NHS than in the United States, which is way too fragmented and, and corrupt right now. But in the National Health Service, there can be more of a focus on wellness. Whether that would involve directly talking to patients about these choices or whether it would be the leaders of the NHS getting together with the government. In fact, it is all the government at the end of the day and looking at these statistics and saying this is going to bring the country down. We need a whole raft of policies. Of course, we need education. You can put posters in every GP office warning people about the dangers of ultra processed food. But I would say in terms of a campaign here, we need a campaign probably five times the order of the campaign against big tobacco. So you go back 50, 60 years, every other person used to smoke. What was it, 50% of people used to smoke? Doctors used to smoke on ward rounds. <laughs> they did, we know that, we've all heard the stories. You may remember when you were young, I do, people smoking on planes. But what a yeah. 180 we've done on that issue. And it would have been unimaginable if someone had gone back in 1955 and said, do you know one day this will be considered unacceptable? They say, what are you, what are you talking about? So we need that sort of campaign against ultra processed food, which I would, I would argue is actually more dangerous than tobacco is. You need to go all out on that front and the NHS, if it really wanted to, could collaborate with the government to produce that sort of campaign. The biggest part here, because whatever the US is, the UK is probably about 60 or 70% there with everything I'm saying. The biggest part is affordability. We have to make the real food the default option. That ultimately is going to drive behaviors. So when we get to a point, and a country like the UK can do it because it's a smaller country, say in every supermarket, whether it's through subsidies or taxes, we will make people go into the supermarket and realize that buying the fresh, real food is the cheapest option. That's probably the only thing that is going to solve this problem, make parents give their kids better, real food. It's all going to come down to that in the end. So until that happens, every you, yes, you can have campaigns, you can have doctors educating people about the pro-inflammatory effects of literally everything they're eating, but we have to make it affordable for everybody. That would probably solve the problem overnight. I, I think I th it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, eating healthy, it's, it's hard work. Like even if you've got the financial means to eat healthy, it is, you know, it boils down to, uh, you know, a messier kitchen in the evening, more time around food, more thought around preparation, all of those kind of things. But exactly. it's interesting what you're, essentially what you're saying is, yes, but if fresh mints, garlic and vegetables was much, much cheaper than a ready meal, then it wouldn't be an option. People would just have to cook more from scratch and therefore eat healthier. Yes. That's, that's always a key to behavior change. Once you make something <laughs> cheap, People will always go, especially the, most of the country are the working class, people with not as much money. They will go for that. They don't want to spend money on mm. food. And it's interesting you use the analogy of tobacco because that is exactly what has happened, right? What was a packet of Marlboro Reds 15 years ago compared to what it is now? I don't, what, yeah. is a, what, is, what is a 20 pack of cigarettes? It's, what, it's 10 pounds, is it? Or something crazy? It's really, yeah. it's much more expensive now. Exactly. 
Yeah. And so actually people have been priced out in some ways over being making a decision themselves. Yeah, I suppose. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the campaign against the health risks has played a big part as well. And it's just become more socially unacceptable. But yeah, it started with making cigarettes more expensive. Although if you look at the curves for people stopping smoking, the when the health warnings started going out, then you started to see people tapering off because most people don't want to get sick. You'll always get some people who do the bad things. But most people, when you actually educate them, I mean, I sit down in my coaching all the time and I talk people through the science of what happens when your body takes in sugar or seed oil. And they say, I never thought of that. I did not know. Thank you. And then once you know that, you're just going to think twice or a certain percentage of people will think Mm -hmm. twice. Why am I going to put this in my body now? I think, um, you know, that that sometimes the the really kind of simple analogies as well. But when you think about... um, you know, whenever I talk to any of my friends who had nothing to, to 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 do with this industry, and I talk about the conversations that I've I've had with with interesting people around the world, I often find the kind of analogy of you know, lots of my friends are into cars, right? Okay. Like they the, the love classic cars or, or, or things like that, and I say, um, think about the purification that goes into the fuel that you put into your car. And then the filters inside the car that make sure that that fuel is it, that, that that fuel is clean going in. Can you imagine any impurities? Like if that had just been sat in a rusty can, or you'd mixed a bit of Coca Cola in it, or anything like that? Would you put that in the engine of the car? And they're like, no. Okay, what would happen if you just put a can of Coke in the car every so often, or a couple of drops? Okay, yeah, probably not too much. But soon it would start to cough and splutter and over time it would. And literally every time straight away, they're like, you've <laughs> got a can of Coke in the hand and they're like, yeah. oh, and I'm like, the body is, it's no different. It's actually really simple. It just kind of wants clean things and you not to bother it too much. Like, exactly. don't burden I think that's it. That's a great story. Yeah. I mean, people will think twice about putting junk in their, their car or even yeah. what they feed their animal. Most people yeah. are more careful with their dogs. They wouldn't give their dog a donut. They know what's going to happen to the dog. Yeah. They, they take but actually, care. but you, but, but the reality is, is you cannot be overly simplistic about this because I think even some of the challenges around, you know, people that try to be healthy and buy a cereal bar, for example, and maybe it doesn't have, they look at the label and it maybe doesn't say this contains loads of sugar, but actually understanding the complex carbohydrates, the sugar substitutes, the high fructose, all of these kind of, it is actually really hard for people because of the way food is presented or advertised to, to, yeah. to, to see the wood for the trees, right? That's true. Yeah, it is very, very hard for most people out there. Most people, especially who aren't educated beyond a certain level, um, may not even realize the basics of nutrition. But then what, that's what also is for doctors. Uh, this is, there's a, a large segment of the medical establishment that thinks it's nothing to do with doctors. We are here to just fix problems, but I would draw a comparison with the education industry. If you had every single, or let's just say people reach the age of 18 in the UK and only 10% could read a sentence, 
wouldn't you at some stage say what's going on with our teaching industry it's completely failing so it's absolutely on the medical profession now i understand that a gp now can't spend 10 minutes talking about food because the entire system is set up like that but there should be an awareness then there should be a big movement to change this and bring about better health coaching and education for patients. It's interesting. Um, I was in uh, London a few weeks ago and um, we, we were out with friends. I got chatting to somebody and, and found out she was a, a dietitian. I spend a lot of my life now speaking to functional practitioners, people more in the kind of lifestyle space. So of course, I, there is a, a bias, perhaps, uh, certainly. Um, uh, but but I've spoken to a lot of people specifically around inflammatory diseases, IBD, things like Crohn's, and have heard so much about the extensive research going into how just simply removing certain inflammatory uh, foods can have a huge impact on the uh, the the spike of flare-ups or the frequency of flare-ups. Yeah. And I was I was chatting to this this dietitian and and, and what dietitians like that's that's no simple training, right? That's it. That is they're going through extensive what three year uh, training to become a qualified dietitian on the NHS. And and we were having just a casual conversation, uh, and I, she was asking me what I do, and I was talking. We got on to sort of Crohn's. Um, and I said, oh, I'm interested to know like how you sort of manage that. And she was t- talking to me about it. And I said, oh, what about kind of removing foods and that? And her response was, oh, we say to all of our clients like, you've got to live life. So you, you've got to have your chocolate cake and you've got to have your just. And I was honestly kind of sat there uh, thinking. That's a good, yeah, just nothing. Just <laughs> total shock. You know, and, and, and my partner, I'm not a qualified practitioner, right? We, we, we're involved in ed- helping other people share this kind of knowledge. But just through the process of osmosis, I've kind of picked these things up, chatting to, chatting to people. And that's what I was interested in asking you, Sunil, is like, is the training that, that we are putting people through, is there a risk that it is outdated? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's not just outdated, yes. It's it's also frequently completely wrong. Uh, Most doctors out there don't know the basics of nutrition and the basics they do know are the result of uh, decades old pieces of advice which come from things like the food pyramid in the United States, the fact that the sugar industry was paying major medical institutions and universities to propagate the myth that all saturated fats are bad. That's a whole different story. But it's interesting you mentioned that. But, but some, let me let me just yeah. let me pause you there because I think that's yeah. really really important. Some people won't understand what you're saying by that okay. is. Sure. What we are insinuating by this is that could there be a possibility that major medical institutes are training people with outdated information? That's the question here. And what you said there about the sugar industry and fat is basically what you would. I'm, I'm just trying to break this of down. Course. So yeah, yeah, it's a big topic. Go ahead. Yeah. It, it, 
so so the the reaction as a as as a consumer somebody that loves the nhs all these kind of things is to say like no like it, it like this is crazy this we're bordering on uh, conspiratorial kind of conversations here but but the reason that you said the sugar thing just just explain what happened like because i think this is important to show when organizations of this size and industries have been proven perhaps to be putting profit over over truth or purpose for example okay i'll try and explain in two or three minutes why a large yes. segment of your pop uh, of your listeners and we're we're probably in this category 30 years ago we were growing up thinking that margarine is better than butter and how saturated fats are bad well, this started in the United States. This is why all countries, including the UK, have to be very careful with any advice that comes from the United States. We have a long history of corruption going back, say, 100 years when people used to have a much more wholesome diet. Uh, we go back to the early 1900s. What people ate was completely different to now, and we didn't have this rate of chronic diseases, diabetes, heart disease, inflammatory diseases. Then in the mid part of the 1950s and 60s, mid part of the century, people were starting to get these illnesses. And there was a big movement in medicine in the United States to determine the cause of increasing rates of heart disease. And you had several things come together and I'm gonna to try to summarize it as much as I can and people can do their own research or maybe we could talk again in more detail. But what happened was we had um, Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, who had a heart attack and it was international news at the time. And the question was, why did he get his heart attack? And people failed to think about the obvious fact that he was a chain smoker. And you had several prominent physicians in the United States, one of whom was Dr. Ansel Keys, K-E-Y-S. I encourage everybody who doesn't know who he was to go and look at his work. He started to put the blame on saturated fat. And he had a lot of conflicts of interest. He, he released a lot of data and studies, including the famous seven countries study, where he cherry picked data, which basically laid the blame for heart disease on saturated fat. Around the same time, other institutions were looking into this and we had a group of scientists at Harvard that were basically studying this. And it was found out years afterwards, decades afterwards, that these scientists had basically been paid by an organization called the Sugar Research Foundation because there was some debate whether it was carbohydrates, simple refined carbohydrate sugars or saturated fats which were causing this problem. So they were paid, which in the equivalent of today's money might equate to millions of dollars to basically lay the blame on saturated fats and not sugars. They were paid by the Sugar Research Foundation. That was another key development. Then a third development was in the late 1940s, early 50s, the American Heart Association, which is now a billion dollar organization in the United States, also totally corrupted, they were a fledgling organization. And a company, I, I believe they're a big company in the UK as well, Procter & Gamble, they made vegetable oils. Crisco was a big one. They basically sponsored the American Heart Association in some sort of radio contest. They gave them a million plus dollars, which today would be tens of millions of dollars. And they basically helped launch the American Heart Association. 
So guess what? Boom. What happens a few years later? The American Heart Association says, yes, saturated fats are bad. Vegetable oils are good, which our sponsors are actually making. And all of these events started a cascade which spread all around the world. It's happened in England. I know it's happened in India as well to say that the problem with your diet is saturated fat. Let's just give carbs a pass and will promote vegetable oils instead, which are highly industrially processed. So that in a nutshell, I spoke longer than three minutes. Those were three key events that happened and people have to understand, your listeners, our listeners now have to understand that what they were brought up thinking was not just good hearted advice that was coming from good sources. It was coming from what is medical, really, let's be honest, medical misinformation, which started as a result of deep-rooted financial conflicts of interest. It is very sad when you think that this has affected the health of hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people, but this bad advice, these conflicts are still going on to this day. And the top nutrition industries in the United States, and I do blame the US because this is where all of these things start, are completely corrupted and they are not to be trusted. There are plenty of other sources out there that can tell you what is recommended, but you have to take government health advice with a pinch of salt because it's starting from the wrong premises. Someone's listening to this and, and um, you know, where does, where does a, a, a normal consumer start to begin you know let's just think about basic kind of dietary information where are where are places that are uh uh agnostic where they can give sensible um advice where where do you advise people to go to understand whether they should have certain oils in their food or not i can summarize this in one sentence what did your grandmother tell you to eat <laughs> it's yeah that's it yeah natural food as close to the natural source as possible avoid anything mm -hmm. which goes through a factory that is produced by one of the 10 corporations that almost completely control our food supply the closer you get to nature and it's like anything any I, i'm obviously my, my whole specialty is lifestyle medicine whether we're talking about stress whether we're talking about sleep the closer you get to nature what your ancestors did what we are built for will stand you in a very good stead not to get sick. There's never any guarantees in health. So what your grandmother told you to eat, natural food, she cooked herself. She made it from scratch. She went to the local store. She bought food that wasn't tainted with all the complete rubbish it is now. In, in the UK, it's much better than it is in the US. Here, ultra-processed food consumption is 70% of all calorie intake. It is a dire situation. That's why we have children now on liver transplant lists because their livers are failing due to fatty liver disease. Nobody's doing anything about it. We're just looking at this disaster unfold. But the answer is that simple. Get back to nature. Eat naturally. I, um, I, I think actually, you know, for, for, for takeaways, I think the thing about oils is, is really interesting because I think even people that are, um, uh, you know, reasonably kind of healthy, um, sometimes there there can be a bit of a misunderstanding around oils, and we've spoken about this before with a, with a few people. But um, can you just uh, elaborate a little bit more? So so when we think about uh, oils, we think about 
uh, cooking in oils, frying in oils, coating our food, salads, things like that in oils. What should people be looking out for and, and, and what are the kind of risks associated? Yeah, so there's all sorts of sorts of oils that you can cook with and there's a whole science behind this, saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats. But in a nutshell, no pun intended. Now, I'm not a fan of the term vegetable oil. I think that is a marketing ploy. Oils don't come from vegetables, they come from seeds. These are seed oils. In the UK, you call the most common one, I think, rapeseed oil. Over here in the US, it's called canola oil. So when you want to buy an oil, there are various things you have to consider. I'll try to summarize as succinctly as I can. The first thing you want to consider is, is it a processed oil? So what you want to look for is something which says cold pressed on it, which means that the seeds are crushed. There's no additional heat. There's no additional chemicals. They use hexane a lot for extraction of seed oils. These food companies want to get maximum extraction. So you want to specifically look for cold pressed if you're looking for oil. I am not a fan of the typical vegetable oils, whether it's canola oil, sunflower oil, soybean oil. I don't eat them myself because these are predominantly unsaturated fats. They are high in omega-6. Various types of fatty acids we need like omega-3, omega-6. And the key concept to bear in mind here is that over the last 40 years, we've seen a flip in our omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Omega-3 predominantly comes from food sources like fish, nuts, seeds, etc. Omega-6 is found in vegetable oils and our consumption of vegetable oils has gone through the roof. I was reading a statistic in the UK that in a lifetime, someone will consume one and a half bathtubs of vegetable oil, which is shocking. But Remember, this was not around, it's coming back to that same principle. This was not around a hundred years ago. We didn't, we didn't consume vegetable oils. And we want to consume, if we want to cook with an oil or a fat, something that is as chemically stable as possible. The unsaturated vegetable oils like canola oil will tend to oxidize more easily than cooking with saturated fat, whether that's butter or ghee, which has been around for hundreds of years. My own personal favorite, I know there's debate about this, but I like extra virgin olive oil. I try not to heat it up too much, but I do cook with yeah. that regularly. And so just for a, a little bit of context around that. So what Sunil's saying is, is that um, uh, uh, obviously olive oil is relatively unprocessed and and several kind of health benefits associated with it, but more and more research kind of coming out now even though it oxidizes at a higher temperature, that actually when it gets past a certain temperature, it, it may not necessarily be, it, it could become less healthy, let's say. Is that fair to say if it gets too hot in a pan? Correct, yeah. If it gets too hot, this is debatable, uh, but yeah, you if you go too far past the smoke point, that's when these oils start to oxidize. And oxidation is the whole gist of, metabolic health. That's what you're trying to prevent within your body, the production of free radicals implicated in inflammation, aging, cancer even. So you don't want it to be taking in food, which is easily oxidized. So in a nutshell, that's the problem with a lot of these vegetable oils. They are inherently unstable. I go for my own personal favorites, extra virgin olive oil, butter, ghee. And after that, I would go if I had to with coconut oil. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny, actually, we had um, Beth's, uh, my, my partner's uh, grandma uh, over at the house. And I remember we were we were cooking dinner and I was throwing, we use, we use butter or ghee and I was kind of throwing it in the pan. And she was outraged, <laughs> like like at this idea that we were that we were cooking everything in in, in butter and ghee, and it, it, it's funny, isn't it? And and who's to know? Maybe in years to come, that that will be kind of disproven first. But more and more trials coming out around oils, so I think that's an, that's an interesting one. I'm 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 fascinated uh, to know, um, you know, uh, your sort of growth online. Um, your, uh, I think certainly, um, you have very, you have a very, very strong viewpoint on things. And I think that has, that is really helpful in, in today's like media, right? People want to know, okay, well, who is this person? What do they stand for? And it's, it's, you know, and I think that you're very, very kind of clear cut about that and do a very, very good job at, at communicating it, even if it sometimes that, that is controversial. And I'm interested to know um, how that sits with, um, you know, you must still be surrounded by colleagues that are in a Western system, the people that you trained with. Um, I, I'm interested to know um, uh, on a social level, you know, you are, you yeah. know, it, there are lots of nutritionists out there. There are a lot of functional practitioners, but people crossing over. Um, uh, I think that's an interesting um, position to be in for you. Yeah, well, thank you for, for your kind words there. Yes, I do have some strong viewpoints, which I think are backed up with science. They're always modifiable because science is always changing. And unlike many of my detractors online, I'm willing to listen to alternative points of view and I have an open mind and I think that's how a physician should be. If somebody tells me that they've eaten some leaf for 10 years and it makes them feel good, who am I to say? There's no evidence you should stop doing that. Hey, if it works for you, keep doing it. I don't know everything. Wisest, wisest is he who knows he knows nothing. That's the a saying from Socrates. I think in general, birds of a feather tend to flock together. I would say most of my best friends who are in, in the medical profession have very similar viewpoints to myself. They will challenge me on some things. And in general, I, I would say yes, I've, I've faced most of the detractors and insults I've faced have been online. In real life, especially if I'm working in the hospital, I will focus on my job every single day. I don't bring my social media presence to work, although it's interesting because most of my colleagues have found me without me even telling them online and have been watching my videos and listening to my viewpoints. But even if I'm wrong, the point is not whether somebody is right or wrong, it's that somebody is allowed to speak and give an opinion and highlight all of the flaws within our current system. and. Ultimately, we have a lot of bad actors here. We have a system which is not fully logical. I worry about some people, their hearts might be in the right place, but their brains are not in the right place. And we've seen that especially over the last three years. A lot of damage can be done by people in high positions who are not thinking logically and who are not willing to tell the truth to people. So I like to think that I do that, and I, th I would like to think that even people who disagreed with me, even at work, will understand that I'm trying my best, and I have my views, and I'm trying to be as scientific as possible. 
but it hasn't been a huge problem for me, knock on wood. You never know when something is going to go wrong, when I'm going to get on the wrong side of, say, a medical board or some institution, but I'm totally ready and up for the fight because nothing happens in this world. Nothing will change for the good without a fight. Wasn't it Winston Churchill who said, so you have enemies, good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. What better quote I think than it's that? Quite it's it's interesting in some ways because it's it's closer to home than you think. I think if we use the the, the parallel of somebody like Jordan Peterson uh, in a in a profession, for those that don't know of Jordan Peterson, uh, a clinical psychologist uh, who was also a, a lecturer, uh, grew to prominence prominence online, um, uh, was very very uh, had a very firm position on free speech. Uh, for example, and this really came to light around uh, uh, universities uh, and the transgender debate. Um, and it started with uh, a risk of being deplatformed uh, online. Um, but actually, now it's come to the point where he's actually at risk of having his um, uh, clinical position removed entirely by by the boards. And I think that's an interesting uh, uh, parallel in some ways, right? Because when you uh, you were quite vocal during COVID uh, around what was going on, you published a lot of content. I believe at one point there was a, a risk of being deplatformed. Is that is, oh, uh, was that right? Several times, several times. I was even in a position where I may have had to leave the United States um, if the mandates had gone ahead if I'd been forced into a certain position. I know this is a topic we might not want to get into, but yeah, I was I was willing to do that. Maybe I would have come back to the UK, but yeah, I have faced threats the whole time and I'm still standing strong and I, I want to continue standing strong and I want to get to a broader point here of what I'm going to be very blunt about again. We do have an epidemic of cowardice in the medical profession and that's evident by everything around us and it's manifested in many different ways. Look at what's happened to the medical profession in the UK. You can't even see a GP. We don't even have enough basic doctors. None of that would have happened if we actually had strong leadership in the first place. If we had people in charge who said, Listen, the most important thing is that we are there for our patients, that we practice good medicine, that we have enough time. The bureaucracy comes second. The debate about pay comes second. The first duty is to our patients. But we have neglected on a mass scale in every country in different ways our basic function as doctors. And I hope that I can encourage more physicians who feel the same way as me to step up to the mark and say we need to get things right here because we're supposed to be a noble good profession that's all about the patient we have to get back to some basics here and think about what we're doing i'm interested um if somebody's listening to this show and and and, and they're hearing you and uh, let's say somebody um uh is uh going to their doctor they're on medication for some kind of metabolic condition um, at the moment. And they're sat listening to this thinking, well, hold on a minute. How do I know I'm on the right medication? What is there that I can do about it? I'm worried if I go to my GP or my consultant, they're just either gonna continue to prescribe me something. What would your advice be to them? My advice would be that it is the most amazing philosophy in the world to want to get off medicines. 
that's my goal. Knock on wood, I'm not on any medicines. I hope I'm never on any medicines. I, I respect the fact that there's some people who have conditions which they have to be on medicines for, but my philosophy is to get off medicines. My advice would be go to your doctor and say, here are my medications. I want you to tell me how I can get off these medicines. What lifestyle, advi what lifestyle changes can I implement? What can I do? What can you wean? Tell me a plan. And if your doctor can't tell you a plan, I would say find another doctor, but I know that's impossible in the UK right now. But that's what you should do. Because people, and my latest video was on how people are on way too many prescription medicines. This is of course a bonanza for pharmaceutical companies. And it's especially evident in the elderly. And side effects, adverse reactions occur. People fall because their blood pressure drops. People get confused because they're on so many mind-altering medications. It's a horrible situation. And your goal should be to try to get off as many medicines as you can. Go back to nature, be as natural as you can in how you combat illness and pathology. Yes, I'm glad I'm living in 2023 and not 1823. You do have some good <laughs> medicines, but the goal should be to avoid them, be healthy. Yeah, I think that's 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 really really interesting. And your long-term plan, Sunil, is it to stay in the US and to stay do you you know because someone could say, well actually with the belief system as strong as yours, uh staying inside the western system in some ways is is ajar to essentially what you're kind of trying to do, but it sounds to me like your belief system is you can only make change from the inside out. Exactly, partly from the inside out and also in the countries that I'm familiar with where I see all these problems and I've got the most people who follow my work, but my, my long-term goal would be, yes, I, I do work still in the hospital a fair amount, but to eventually get more towards I do do a fair amount of lifestyle medicine coaching, focus on content creation, keep staying in that realm, looking at research, interacting with people, and probably dividing my time between the US and UK, I would say, uh, long term. I think that I would head in that direction because I've got a lot of contacts and uh, a lot of um, people I coach now in the United Kingdom as well. Unfortunately, now we can do it virtually, but I would like to be be a figure on both sides of the Atlantic because I do love both countries and have family and friends in both countries and I feel invested both in the US and UK. Well, I'm really pleased that there's people out there like you, Sunil, who are who are having the conversation. It's been um it's been really, really fascinating to talk to you and and, and maybe we can do it again in the future. Definitely. That would be fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you.